0: Okay, well, thank you. Uh, Thanks to Jan for organising this event, which is a sort of fascinating cultural occasion, apart from anything else. But, of course, intellectually fascinating as well. Okay, I want to talk about the chattis and um, its relationship to modern, non-classical logic. And there's a bit of logic in this, and I'm aware that many of you are not logicians, so it's not going to be heavy-duty logic. I'll wave my hands at various points, hopefully, and give you enough idea. And uh, what it has to do with the relevance of this occasion, I will save until the end, by which time it will be much clearer. OK, so we're going to talk about the Czatrish and its perambulations. Um, and I'm going to do it in three stages. Four corners, five corners, more than one corner. You'll see why those are appropriate titles in a minute. And then we're going to have a coda on the ineffability. <laughs> OK, so... Um, Stage one, four corners. So the Chachikoti, of course, is um, a venerable uh, view in Indian metaphysics or logic. I'm not sure whether it's one or the other, but it doesn't really matter. And it makes its appearance in Buddhist literature in the earliest sutras, which I'm sure you're familiar with. So there are sutras when uh, the Buddha's disciples ask him the tough questions, such as... What happens after you achieve enlightenment, Gautama? And he says, how is it, Gautama? Does the God, does Gautama believe that the saint oh sorry I'm sorry about the translation. It's a crappy translation. I presume the saint here is an Ahad. Yeah? Does the Ahad exist after death? Uh, and do you believe that the Ahad exists after death? And that view alone is the is true and every other false? Nay, Vacha, I don't hold the saint exists after death, and that view alone is true and every other false. Okay, so you you know the text, right? So the first question, is it true? No, I don't hold that. Is it false? No, I don't hold that. Is it um, both true and false? It exists and doesn't exist after death? No, I don't hold that. Okay. So is, does the uh, arhat exist? Uh, on neither exist nor exist. Okay. So the Buddha refuses to answer the questions. This is true. But the interlocutors are assuming a certain framework in which to pose the question, and the framework is that there are four possibilities. Uh, exists, doesn't, both or neither. So, I- in sort of semantic terms, true, false, both, neither. So, this is the sort of vanilla flavoured Chattascotti. Um, so, I- you can think that in, in Western logic, or at least uh, for Aristotelian logic, there's a principle of excluded third. Right? Everything is true, false, not both, not neither, nothing else. The Chattascotti in this incarnation is a principle of excluded fifth. Okay, true, false, both, neither, one of those, nothing else. Okay, so um, that's the basic Chachacotti and um, when Westerners tried to get their head around this and all they had to operate with was the principle of excluding middle and non-contradiction, they made a complete balls up of it. All right, I'm not going to go through the things they've said, which are pretty terrible, but um, from the perspective of modern non-classical logic, it's obvious what's going on here, Okay. So, there's a logic called first-degree entailment, um, and you can see the four cotties of the Chacha's cotti before your very eyes, okay. So, um, there are t- four truth values, true and true only, false and false only, both true and false, and neither true nor false, okay? So, there are four semantic values that a statement might have. And if you're a logician, the next thing you want to know is, well, you know, how do things like conjunction and negation operate on these values? OK, well, uh, true and false are your know, old-fashioned favourite values. No change there. If you negate a true, you get false. If you get a false, you get true. If you negate something that's both true and false, you get something that's both true and false. Right? And if you get something that's neither true nor false, well, that's neither true or false as well. So negation behaves like that. And conjunction uh, is the greatest lower bound. What that means is that you go down the arrows, essentially. So if you conjoin B and F, you get F. If you conjoin T and F, you get F. If you conjoin B and N, you go down the arrows, you get F. So you just go down the arrows until you hit something, right? Um, And that's conjunction. And disjunction works dually. just turn it upside down. And this is a many-valued logic. In classical logic, that is Frege-Russell logic, there are two truth values, true and false, and a valid argument is one which preserves truth. So, in a many-valued logic, um, what plays the role of truth is designation, and a valid argument is one that preserves designated values. So, in this structure, the designated values are T and B, because they're both species of truth. This is true only, this is true and false, but they're both true. So a valid argument is one which um, preserves these designated values. Now, an argument is valid if all the premises... If all the premises take either the value of B or T, so does the conclusion. All right, this is a very, very standard piece of contemporary non-classical logic. Um, and uh, it, um, the thought that... Uh, This represents a contemporary version of the Chajrakati. It's sort of obvious once you've seen it. It doesn't need a great deal of argument. All right, so that's stage one. Now, stage two. Um, In the little sutra that we've just had, the Buddha refused to answer those questions. And um, why he refused to answer the questions is not obvious. Uh, In some of the sutras, he says, you know, don't worry your pretty little heads about this, my boy, just get on with the uh, meditation, you know. Uh, and in some switches, as, well, none of these may apply. Anyway, that, that, that lays on the table for 700 years or so until you get to Nagarjuna. And when you get to Nagarjuna, something else seems to happen. Okay, So, if you read the MMK, you find this passage in 22. Empty should not be asserted. Non-empty should not be asserted. Neither both nor neither should be asserted. These are used only nominally. How can the tetralemma of permanent and impermanent, etc., be true of the peaceful? How can the tetralemma of finite and infinite, etc., be true of the peaceful? Now, uh, I realise that there are issues about how you interpret this passage, and I'm sure that Mark is going to disagree with me, but this won't be the first time, so that's fine. Um, Prima facie, at least, to my way of reading, this says there are possibilities for which you can apply none of the corners of the koti. The peaceful, if you look at it in this chapter, is actually the state of the arhat after death. Um, Although, in the next chapter of the MMK, uh, Nagarjuna says, and that's exactly the same as ultimate reality. So You can think of it as either. Um, And what this is saying is that he runs through the four possibilities and says, if you take the state of the eye after death, of ultimate reality, you cannot apply any of these things to it. And these are the only things you can say about it. It's got to be one of these, right? You can't say any of them. So, uh, it certainly looks as though he's saying there's a fifth possibility, namely ineffability, about which you can't say anything. and uh, I, I think at least several people in the Majamika tradition interpret these remarks that way. OK, so how do you make sense of this? Well, it's easy. OK, there's our old Chattuskoti, and then we've added in a fifth value, namely E, <laughs> which is none of the above. OK, all right, so uh, those are the five truth values. How do um, uh, How does the rest of the machinery work? Well, um, the designated values, those are the things that valid arguments preserve, are the same as before. You don't want to preserve ineffability. Well, I suppose you might do on a good day, but anyway, as far as this logic goes, all right, these are the designated values. Um, The connectives work as before, except that you've got this extra guy to worry about. Um, What does ineffability do? Suppose you negate something that's ineffable. What do you get? Something that's ineffable, right? Or if you get, if you, if the negation of something is ineffable, then that thing must be ineffable, right? Same for conjunction. If you conjoin something which is ineffable with something which is ineffable, what do you get? Well, something that's ineffable. So, in other words, this 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 guy here acts as a, as computer scientists say, uh, garbage in, garbage out. Um, if your input to your truth function is ineffable, so is your output. And that's the only condition under which you get something ineffable. OK, um, so there's a sort of subtlety here because normally logicians think of the bearers of values as statements. Now, E here is ineffability. Now, it doesn't make much sense to say that a statement is ineffable, right? So you have to sort of reconceptualize what the bearers of values are and the obvious candidate are states of affairs. So, um, you have to think of uh, states of affairs having a structure, a conjunctive structure, a negational structure and so on, and these five truth values now belong to these. So, it turns out, if you think about it this way, um, that there are actually two Chatteriskottis. There's a Chatteriskottis of statements and a Chatteriskottis of states of affairs. Um, and That actually has some exegetical clout because, In the MMK, Nagarjuna argues often by reductio. And it's a four way reductio. If there's a fifth possibility, it's not a correct reductio because you're missing a possibility. All right? That's okay because he's using the reductio of statements, which is four way. Okay, so that's okay. You can argue by four way reductio if you're talking about statements, but now we're talking about reality. OK, so as a piece of mathematical machinery, it's no problem, and it seems to be being roughly what's required. All right, now, this is where it gets a bit more interesting and more speculative. Um, if anyone tells you that something is ineffable and then gives you an argument as to why this is so, they obviously have a problem because even to explain why it's ineffable, you've got to talk about it. Um, what I'm going to go on to say will address <laughs> that issue, but I'm going to leave that for discussion if you want to raise it, because I want to talk about another issue, and that's this. Um, this guy, I'm sure you all know and love. The Buddha's teaching of the Dharma is based on two truths, a truth of worldly condition and ultimate truth, those who don't understand the distinction between the two truths don't understand the Buddha's profound truth. Without a foundation in conventional truth, the significance of the ultimate cannot be taught without understanding the significance of the ultimate. Liberation cannot be achieved. Okay, fine. Look, if, if Nagarjuna had been my research student and he'd come to me and said, uh, I want to say this, I'd have said, you're, you're an idiot. Okay, look, the Abhidharma people believed there was a conventional truth, which is a conceptual construction, and there's an ultimate truth of things which has far bother. Now, look, in the first 23 chapters, Nag, you've been showing there's no such thing with swings with the harbour. Just forget ultimate truth, right? But he didn't. Okay, so there's a real issue of how you understand ultimate truth in the context of Majanaka. Of course, there is. And just to make things really interesting, of course, yeah, get this. There's not the slightest difference between cyclic existence and nirvana, not the slightest difference between nirvana and cyclic existence. Whatever is the limit of nirvana, that's the limit of cyclic existence, etc. You all know this passage. Um, so nirvana is uh, it's the state of the arhat after enlightenment; it's ultimate reality. Uh, samsara is cyclic existence; that's conventional reality. So he's he just told us there are two realities, and now he's telling there's no difference between them. I think this would have been rejected by mind. <laughs> um, okay, I, I think these two passages put together actually pose um, one of the most touchy subjects of Majjhama exegesis, both in the uh, Eastern traditions and in the Western traditions. Um, the cowherds wrote a book on it and still didn't get it right, I think. Never mind. Okay, so, all right. A standard way of addressing this issue is Chandra Kirtis, which says something like, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, there's only one reality, but it has two aspects an ultimate aspect and a conventional aspect. A bit like two sides of a coin. And we can argue about whether those sides are ontological or epistemological or both or neither, but at least there's one reality with two aspects. Okay. One aspect is conventional reality. So you can describe that, because you can describe conventional reality. So you can say things about it which are true or false, both or neither. And the other aspect is ultimate. And the ultimate, as we've just seen, is ineffable. All right. So what does this mean? So it means one of the same thing can be both describable and indescribable. Or one aspect is describable, you can say something about it, One aspect is indescribable. In other words, a state of affairs... can have two of these values. It can be ineffable, at least under one aspect, and it can be, say, true under another aspect. All right. So, notice that up till now, in the logic, we've allowed things to take only one value. Okay. now we're going to allow things to take more than one value. So, the logical machinery I've described till now is a many valued logic. Um, I'm going to give you a slightly more recent development of many-value logics which allow for truth-bearers, whatever they are, to take more than one value. So, um, we're going to have the same values as before, five of them. Um, Normally, one thinks of an evaluation as a function. So this, thing which, this is something which takes a truth-bearer as an input and gives you a unique, a unique value as an output. Um, we're going to think of, now, an evaluation as a relation which relates every truth-bearer to at least one value, maybe more. So, something can take the value of ineffability And truth. All right, how do the connectives work? Well, they work point wise, which is what you'd probably think of. So let's just do a quick example. Suppose you've got something which is E and false, right? So those are its values, and you negate that. You do it. Well, what do you negate? So that's A, right? What's not A? Well, when you negate E, you get E, and when you negate F, you get T. So you just operate individually. On the atoms. And suppose you've got um, something that's E and F, and something that's E and T, and you can join those. What do you get? Well, you just do it point wise, right? E and E is E. E and T is E. Well, you got that. F and E, it's E, you got that. F and T, well, it's F. So those are the four possibilities. Wait, is that that consistent with what you have on the. I hope so. Yeah, because I used a different example. Here it's T and F, right? There it was E and, e and T. Oh, I Sorry, I, I just wasn't looking at what I'd done. Um, but you, you, the, is the idea clear enough? You just work on the components pointwise. Yeah, 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 I see. So it's every combination of the constituents. All right. Um, and the only other thing you need is um, to know what, how you define validity in this context. Well, Um, Now you need to know what counts as designated when more than one value is possible. So um, what you say is that in this context, you're going to take as designated anything that has a value that was designated in the old context. right? So um, an inference is valid if each premise... whenever Whenever each premise relates to at least one value in D, that's just true or both, then so does the conclusion. All right. Now, if we were logicians, uh, I'd tell you more about these logics. They're actually very simple, very easy to characterise, but that's not where the real issue, interest lies for this occasion. Um, all I've done is show you that, in principle, you can make sense of what's gone before philosophically in precise technical terms. All right, so, um, last point. Uh, You might well say, Well, look, Graham, that's very nice. It's a sort of flight of your logician's fantasy. But you know, none of these Indian philosophers would have taken this seriously, would they? Yes, they would. Okay, so what we've just seen is a precise way of making sense of the thought that something can be effable and ineffable. Now, maybe you can say different aspects, I don't really care but one and the same thing, there's only one reality, and it's effable and it's ineffable. All right, um, can something be effable and ineffable? Well, okay, one of my favourite sutras is the Vimalakirti Sutra, which deals with dualities. And one duality, of course, is the duality between speech and silence so I'm sure you will know this sutra. Um, so this is Chapter 7. Poran uh, Shariputra is getting crap from all around and the goddess jumps out of the cupboard, as Jay puts it, and scatters petals around and they stick to Shariputra and he's a bit pissed off about this because it shows he's not really enlightened. So then the following conversation ensues. Venerable um, "Goddess, how long has your attainment of emancipation... That, that's enlightenment, yeah? Slightly odd translation. Never mind. Um, how long has it been? Shariputra was silent, didn't answer. And the goddess said, With your great wisdom, venerable sir, why do you remain silent? And Shariputra replied, Emancipation cannot be spoken of in words, therefore I don't know what I can say to you. And the goddess rips into him. Uh, the goddess said, Words, writings are all marks of emancipation. Why? Because emancipation is not internal, not external, and not in between. And words likewise are not internal, not external, and not in between. Therefore, Shariputra, you can speak of emancipation without putting words aside. Why? Because all things that exist are marked emancipation. So it's, it's, it's this kind of dark comment, and we, you know, I'm not entirely sure how you interpret it, but I interpret it as saying something like this: Look, language is not separate from ultimate reality; it's part of ultimate reality. So, so, so suppose that you can kind of prize off language from ultimate reality. It's just crazy, it's there, you can talk about ultimate reality because the language is part of the ultimate reality. All right, so anyway, if you, if you stopped after reading chapter seven, you'd think, oh, well, okay, there's no such thing as built. But of course, that's not what happens in the next episode. So, two chapters later, uh, you get all these cool bodhisattvas assembled um, in Bhimala bedroom, and he says, OK, and now the next subject of discussion is uh, duality. And of course, we know there are no such things in the ultimate. What does it mean to be non-dual? And all the body then sort of say cool things. Um, so one of them, I forget which one, says, the unique in form and the formless constitute a dualism. But if one understands that the unique in form is in fact the formless... And then doesn't seize on the formless but sees all as equal, one may in this way enter the gate of non dualism. Hmm, that's a cool idea. And they all sort of run through these things until you get to the end. And the Pandata speaker is Manju Shri, who should know what he's talking about, right? Being the Bodhisattva of wisdom. So they say, well, hey, what do you think, Manju Shri? Um, uh, Manju Shri says, you, uh, to my way of thinking, All dharmas are without words, without explanation, without purport, purport, without cognition, removed from all questions and answers. In this way, one may enter the gate of non-dualism." In other words, you enter the gate of non-dualism by being silent. And Then, of course, they say to the real hero of the sutra, what do you think, Vimalakirti? Manjushri said to Vimalakirti, "Each of us has given an explanation. Now, sir, it's your turn to speak. How does the bodhisattva enter the gate of non-dualism?" And at that time, Vimalakirti remained silent and didn't say a word. And Manjushri sighed and said, "Excellent, excellent. Not a word, not a syllable. This is truly to enter the gate of non-duality." Okay, what's going on here? Well. It's clear that Manju Shri likes Vimalakirti's silence. But notice that they didn't like Shariputra's silence. What's the difference? The difference is the context. And the difference is that it's just gone after Manju Shri's words. Okay? So it's not just simply keeping your mouth shut which transcends duality, it's the fact that one and the same thing being non-dual, can both be spoken about and not spoken about. and Shri has just demonstrated one side of this and Vimalakirti demonstrates the other. So, um, I don't think the thought that you can... That, that the ultimate is both effable and ineffable is simply a figment of my imagination. I think it's in the tradition and I think it's at least here. All right, so... Um, Let let me just... I've said all that I really want to say. Let me just say a few words relating this to the purport of the conference. Um, What is the relevance of this? What do I take to be the relevance of this? Well, first of all, um, I think there's a relevance for Western philosophers who will read some of these texts and think, that's gobbledygook, right? Because it's just illogical. Well, no, it's not. You can make perfectly fine sense of this from a technical, logical perspective. That doesn't mean that it's true, of course. Being coherent logically is one thing, being true is something else. But you you cannot write off this stuff simply because it's logically incoherent, because you can make perfectly good, precise mathematical sense of it. Okay, Um, but then, really, this conference is about the other side of the issue. What has this philosophy got to learn from the application of these logical techniques? And um, I think the relevance of that is that it gives us a way of understanding some of the technical stuff, which not only shows that it's, um, one can make precise sense of it, but in a sense, it allows us to understand what was going on or what was at issue much better than before. So, um, of course... These guys did not have the tools of modern formal logic, uh, and you might well say, "So it's anachronistic." And yes, it is. Of course, it is. But uh, I think, as, as Jay said this morning, you know, thought has gone a long way since these things were written. We now know a lot more things than these guys did, and that's not because we're smarter. It's just because we had another two thousand years to think about it. All right. And I don't see anything in principle bad about applying the techniques of modern logic to ancient thought to show people in more detail what the implications of the content of the thought was. We do it to Plato, we do it to Aquinas, we do it to Hegel, we do it to Heidegger, we can do it to these guys too. Um, And I, I think in some sense the logic shows us better what the content and the implications of the views in question were. Uh, and so I, I take it to be a very useful thing that um, we can apply the tools of modern logic uh, to, um, to develop mediamica thought in this way. Thank you.